Hi there, I'm Scarlett Fu of Bloomberg Television, and I want to welcome you to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast, in which we bring you conversations we've had during our monthly speaker series held at Bloomberg's global headquarters in New York City. Cornell Tech at Bloomberg brings together students from Cornell Tech, Bloomberg employees, and members of New York's technology community to hear from entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders, luminaries from the global technology sector. Our inaugural Cornell Tech at Bloomberg event featured a conversation with Y Combinator President Sam Altman. Y Combinator provides seed funding and valuable resources for early stage startups such as Airbnb, Code Academy, Dropbox, and Stripe. Let's jump into the interview with my Bloomberg News colleague Tom Giles, where the two discuss funding trends, what MBAs get wrong about starting startups, raising debt versus equity, and more. Where have you come the furthest and where do you have the furthest to go? You know, these things always uh, look pretty good on the outside and sort of like absolute disasters on the inside. Um, so I think we still have a very long way to go in everything that we're trying to do. Um, but I think we have done pretty well. Um, but we don't, I think one, one good thing about us is that we never get comfortable. Uh, we always talk about what we need to improve. So I would say on every, on every aspect, you know, we need to get better at picking, get better at helping, fund more companies, figure out how to grow, scale up and down the stages better, go around the world, different types of companies, different types of founders. Um, we have lots and lots of work left to do everywhere. Yeah, good. Well, we're going to drill down in some of those areas in just a minute, but I'd love to get a sense of what are some of the, what are some of the companies you find yourself targeting now that, that wouldn't have happened three years ago? Well, one new area that we have really invested in a lot um, in the last two years that we didn't do at all before that is biotechnology. Um, so we funded in this upcoming YC class out of about 120 companies. Uh, there are 15 or 17 biotech companies. Um, that's up from zero two years ago. Uh, that's, that's a really important area. I think people still are underestimating sort of the impact that synthetic bio is going to have on all of us, even with the hype. Um, AI is another area that we didn't do much before and that we've really ramped up a lot. Uh, energy is an area that I'm personally really excited about. Uh, I think, you know, if you could pick one problem if I could pick one problem I'd love to get solved, the very top one would be strong AI, but the second would be cheap, clean energy. So we've been doing a lot more there. Uh, and then, you know, all the stuff that we've done all along. Um, so we mostly fund software companies. Yep. Yep. Um, right now, we're seeing a lot of reevaluation on, on the part of investors in uh, kind of how they value, how they think about what a company is worth. Um, we've seen some, some write downs, including of some of the, some of the companies in, in your portfolio. Um, as you look at, are, how often are you kind of reevaluating what the companies are worth, either on an individual basis or collectively? Never. Okay. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I have learned uh, over the course of my investing career is that intermediate valuations for startups are completely made up and don't matter. Um, the only time I care about the valuation is once when we invest uh, and once when we get liquid. And beyond that, uh, I never think about it. If a company goes public and then I have like shares you know, in a public company, then I have to think about it. Do I want to sell at this price? Do I not want to sell? And I usually just sell because it stresses me out to like, have to watch the price go up and down. Um, although I think the right answer with good companies is to never sell. Uh, sometimes the stress of like, the ticks just undoes me. Um, but you know, I really try not to get caught up in the debate about valuations and is this overpriced, is this underpriced, because I'm not selling. And I always, we always buy at the same price. We have a very standard deal. We don't deviate from it. Right. And we don't sell until the company gets acquired or goes public. So I only ever have to think about it when someone hands me public shares and I have to decide what to do with them. 
So you avoid talking about a bubble. I won't, talk, I won't ask you to answer that question, but you do talk about this idea of a bust. Yeah. And the area that you have identified that you're most concerned about is, is the later stages. Why have those valuations, for this audience, why have those gotten out of line so far to the extent that they have? Yeah, this is the point on the tech bus. I don't really believe we're in like a full out bust, but I think that it is an interesting thought experiment relative to the current uh, fashion that we're in a crazy tech bubble. Um, you know, the PE ratios of public tech companies are lower on average than non-tech, which seems crazy to me given the difference in growth rates. Uh, early stage startups feel expensive. They felt expensive to me for years, but they keep really earning those valuations on average. You know, plenty of individual failures. Uh, so I can't point to any of those areas and say the prices have become disconnected from reality and everyone fervently believes that they're going to go up. Um, because no one believes they're going to go up. The, uh, I think the one place where you could say they're disconnected but still there's not fervent belief uh, is on the late stage. And I think what's happened there is um, you can't earn a return on capital any longer uh, with interest rates basically from anywhere unless you want to take crazy risk. And so in a 0% world, uh, which we've not had for eight years. It's crazy. This has basically never happened. I mean, if you look at a graph of interest rates over the last few hundred years, um, you know, they've gone down and down and down over time, but they've never stuck at zero for this long. So no one knows how to think about this. And then there's this question, like, you have capital, you'd like a return, you don't want to see, like, inflation just eat it away. Uh, what, what can you do with that? And it's gotten harder to answer, right? Like, it used to be that at the very minute, you know, if nothing else, you could buy U.S. government bonds. And you still can't do that, and thankfully they aren't yet negative. Um, but that's not what most investors are going for. And so you have people trying to synthesize debt because there is no natural debt available. And one way you see this happening is people buying these uh, complex instruments in private companies that they claim are equity so that they can maintain their venture capital fund exemption with the SEC, but actually look nothing like equity at all. Uh, and we saw one recently that had a minimum guaranteed 2x return and a maximum possible return of 3x. And that was the first money out of the company. So this was a company that was worth more than $10 billion, um, or maybe near $10 billion. Uh, and they, you know, the investor invested, I don't know, a few hundred million, 100 million, something like that. So chances of them not getting their money back, very low. Chances of them, you know, getting a 10x return, zero. Uh, and I think something like that starts to look more like that than equity. And, and thus, when you look at the prices on an equity basis, they look really high. but. That's just this sort of synthetic thing. Why are, why are startups accepting terms like that? Well, it's not an irrational thing. If you're a startup and you're very confident in how you're going to do, um, you might just want to raise debt. Like that would, in many cases, raising debt makes more sense than raising equity. Uh, traditionally, it has not been available to startups. But as the, you know, on the negative side, like it's become harder to buy debt anywhere else. And on the positive side, startups have become more mature and better understood and more stable and generating more cash flow, more investors are willing to do this. So yeah, you could very easily decide that you want to raise debt instead of equity, and now that's available to you. So the investors, you understand why they want to protect their downside. Who's hurt when you, when you start seeing more and more terms like this? Well, sometimes no one. I mean, again, sometimes everyone goes in eyes wide open, and it's a debt deal, and that's fine. No one's hurt in a case like that. Um, maybe you know the LPs and the venture firm weren't getting what they thought they were getting. Um, but that's between them and, and the, the managers of that fund. The people that I think get hurt um, most often are employees at these startups that look at these valuations and think they're uh, not fictional. And so someone says, well, you know, I have this one offer that's like X hundred thousand dollars a year in cash, and this one that's 
you know, a third of x, but I'm getting this equity and it's worth this much. And they use that last round sticker number. And that is nowhere close to reality. I think that's who gets hurt when someone gets hurt. Are, do we need to think differently, or should, should the SEC change the way it is, is allowing investors to classify themselves? Should we see more stringent rules around the exemptions there? Well, I think that will probably happen, although, again, I don't think anyone is deceiving anyone at this point. I think everyone understands what's going on. And so, no, I don't think we need more stringent rules because everyone, every actor, understands what's happening. How has, how has this discussion and the, these concerns about later stages changed the way you're advising your companies? Well, one of the things that I think Y Combinator does really well is that we advise our companies to try not to burn huge amounts of money. And um, you know, this has actually been somewhat bad advice for the last couple of years because capital has been so incredibly available that sometimes it is worth just growing faster. But you can't count on that forever. And we think it's better to err on the side of safety when it comes to burn rates. Um, as a side benefit, I think you get a much better culture if you have a very frugal company. Um, so I think Y Combinator companies are hurt the least if the super cheap capital goes away. Okay. Um, speaking of bigness, um, there's a lot of discussion around, you know, you're wanting YC to be bigger, to invest more. I think you want invested capital to go up by 10 times in a decade? We've grown a lot already. Uh, okay. 10x from when we said that, yeah. At, um, at what point does YC become too big? Um, the, the thing that is most important about YC is that we are a, a community of founders and a, and a very tight network. You know, I think all, all, most of our founders say that it's sort of like you know, 10 times tighter than their affiliation with their university alumni network or anything else. So it's this, this loose network in, in tech and startups in Silicon Valley that is uh, incredibly helpful to the companies that we fund. And if that started to dilute, um, and the way that would happen is if the founders we funded were less good, uh, then that would be disastrous. And I think that is the biggest risk we'd face with growing too quickly or getting too big. Okay. Um, we, we would like to fund like every great founder in the world and no one else. So wherever that line is, we don't want to get any bigger than that. All right, you hear that in New York? Um, Speaking of uh, our audience, um, what is there any kind of discussion? I realize that really uh, an entrepreneur from anywhere, both in the, in the United States and abroad, can apply to YC. But is there talk or is there discussion of kind of setting up a home base outside of the Bay Area, like, for example, New York or London or somewhere in Asia? We do talk about it periodically, and we may do it someday in the future. I don't think any of us are um, you know, dead set against that. I think it's still such a huge advantage to be in Silicon Valley for three months um, and get access to the network there, meet people there, sort of just get embedded with this network you can take with you wherever you go, that I would still feel like we were doing a disservice if we didn't have part of our program be in Silicon Valley. Now, I expect that will someday change, and we you know, reevaluate that every time we all sort of have a partner offside and talk about it. Um, you know, if and when we get to the point where we think it is better for our network and founders to run a program somewhere else, we'll do it. Okay. We're, we're seeing a lot of people who might, in an early, like a decade or two ago, go into, say, investment banking, work at a securities firm, go into consulting. We're seeing a lot of those people gravitate toward Silicon Valley, gravitate toward tech, gravitate toward software. Are you, to what, how often are you encountering these people and what kinds of misconceptions do you find them coming to Silicon Valley with most frequently? 
Yeah, certainly the, the, the MBAs have been coming recently. Um, you know, uh, I think there are good reasons and bad reasons for that. Uh, and, and the misconceptions they have um, depend on whether they're coming for the good reasons or the bad reasons. So the worst reason, um, you know, there's this famous observation that uh, sort of MBAs are this lagging indicator. And uh, because they sort of have been trained to be risk averse, they go into whatever seems the safest. But the world changes so quickly that if you do that, you come in at the end of a cycle. And, and so the, the class of MBAs always picks the wrong thing. Uh, so unfortunately, hopefully that's not true, because um, they're definitely coming to tech right now, to startups right now. Um, so one bad reason is that people think they're going to make a lot of money quickly. Uh, and another bad reason is that uh, a lot of the things that MBAs used to do are not working. You know, Finance has not been as great the last few years or the last seven years as it was before that. Um, you know, sort of the big corporate jobs have gotten less attractive than they were the general management jobs at big companies. And so, you know, people sort of watch the social network or whatever they do and say, wow, that, that seems like a way to make a lot of money quickly and this is the new thing and they go, come do that. So um, the biggest misconceptions that that crew of people has is um, that it's easy, that what they learn in business school will help, and they're going to make a lot of money quickly. Um, and you know, we try to explain to everyone uh, that none of those things are true. You know, um, starting a startup sort of is hard in a way that most people don't have a framework for, uh, harder than any kind of regular job. Um, and it takes far longer than anyone thinks, even if you adjust for that it's going to take really long uh, in your head. And you don't make a lot of money for a long time, and then all of a sudden you make a bunch at once. Or maybe not. Usually you don't make any. Uh, and so we try to explain this to people. Do you see the shift in talent having a long-term impact both on Silicon Valley and financial services? What are the long-term implications? Um, well, I don't think it's going to be a forever shift. I mean, one thing about this group of people is that they they sort of move around and kind of focus on different areas at different times. So I don't think it'll be a forever shift. Okay. Um, we saw one of your most prominent companies, Airbnb, in, in, in the news recently quite a bit around Proposition F yeah. in San Francisco. A lot of discussion about the role of tech in the inequality debate um, in the Bay Area and beyond. Um, your sense has been that, well, it's incumbent on the government. There's, the government has dragged its heels in terms of housing reform, for example, affordable housing. Um, but what is tech's responsibility in the debate over income inequality? Um, honestly, I think tech's responsibility is, well, first of all, I think tech makes inequality worse, but creates so much more wealth that everyone is better off. Um, so if you look at things like Uber, um, they start addressing very rich people only, and then they kind of now, you know, many people of many different economic classes take Uber everywhere. Um, they, you know, products like Facebook are free to users. Products like the iPhone, which are more powerful than a supercomputer, not that long ago, are within the range of billions of people. Um, so this is great. So I think tech generates new wealth, but but certainly concentrates it. Um, and I think inequality uh, is impossible to eliminate, and just because technology concentrates uh, luck and the circumstances you were born into, and skill, and hard work, and everything else. This has been going on since we stopped being hunter-gatherers, right? Like, technology is a lever, and it increases inequality. Um, what I would like to see policy do, because I don't believe uh, inequality can be stopped, I think it's just a 
in outcome of technology uh, is I think policy and government certainly can redistribute. And I think that uh, I'd love to see a policy which is, you know, hey, tech is going to generate more wealth. That's great for all of us. Um, but it is going to become more and more concentrated. And, you know, thus, like, we are a rich enough society that we don't need people worrying about what they're going to eat or where they're going to sleep. And let's have, you know, government fix the redistribution problem there, but not try to say that everyone has to make the same number of dollars because that is just against how technology is going to work. Uh, well, based on that, I think I can predict your answer to this. But right now in the, in, the, uh, in the election cycle, we're talking a lot about investors and carried interest and whether that, how that should be taxed, whether that should be taxed as regular income. What about a situation where you started to see a discussion of should venture capital gains be taxed more like? Oh, I think we should be taxed like ordinary income, and I donate my difference. Tell between me carried in, because I think it's ridiculous that we get a tax break on carried interest. Like I, th I think that um, there is no way, there is no logical way that I can justify uh, why the returns that we earn managing other people's money um, should get capital gains treatment. So, I mean, the good news is YC Research gets big donations from me. <laughs> um, but I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't believe in that. How does that discussion go over over dinner parties and? with your friends in Silicon Valley? Uh, well, there are strongly opposing views. Um, <laughs> the, but not, there are more people that sort of like agree with me that you know, we, should, we should be paying income tax on our income than you would think. Um, there's a separate question which I'm actually not entirely sure what I think about whether there should be a capital gains tax rate at all. Um, but certainly the carried interest thing I have a hard time defending, and plenty of my friends have a hard time defending, too. Yeah, great. Um, when we've talked to you about the question of the lack of diversity among venture capitalists and in some areas of the tech sector, um, you've said that your funding, for example, women-led uh, startups at roughly the rate at which they're applying. Now, I guess my question to that would be, what can you and what are you doing to ensure that you're getting a higher number of applicants, a higher proportion of applicants from, say, female-led uh, startups or those led by minorities who are yeah. underrepresented in, in, in Silicon Valley? Well, I, I think that there are a lot of different things we do. I'll touch on a few. Um, but there are, you know, we don't just look at this as sort of women and men or black founders and white founders. We really just try to say we want the maximally diverse set of the top of the funnel we can have. And, you know, that can mean a whole lot of different things. Um, but if you sort of say everything at once, then you can't really focus on anything. So uh, one of the best things that I think we've done on the um, female founders side is we, we host the Female Founders Conference every year um, in San Francisco. Uh, it is only for female founders, and that has had a noticeable boost to the applications we get from women. Uh, and many of the most successful women that we have funded recently met us or got inspired to start a startup at that conference. Um, we do open office hours uh, focused on specific groups of people where we feel like we don't have the touch points in our network yet that we'd like to. Um, most of the founders that we fund, we have had no previous connection with. However, you know, certainly there are some where an alumni will say, hey, I know this person, this person's great. And we love those recommendations. We love it when, people, when, our, when our alumni go off into the world and meet their smartest friends and say, you got to apply to Y Combinator. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. That is the best possible marketing we can ever have. And so, um, but the downside of that is that people tend to be friends with people like them. Um, now, again, it's, you know, small, small percentage of the referrals, 
but we realized that to reach into new networks, we need to host new events um, or host these open office hours, which have gone over really, really well. Um, one of our founders, uh, Jessica Livingston, and partner now, uh, uh, does the Female Founder Stories Online, where she profiles um, role models of really successful women that we funded. We're going to start doing that for other groups as well. Um, but the role models, putting the role models out there has gone a long way, too. We talked a little bit about, uh, at the beginning, about cash burn yeah. and your concerns about that. What kinds of advice are you giving to your companies about their expenses? How has that changed over the last several months? Um, and you know what kinds of what kinds of advice are you giving them on belt tightening? Right well, you now? know the advice that we give there is always the same, no matter what everybody else is doing. One of the sort of well, not that secret because I talk about it publicly. One of the factors in our success is that we are pretty good at ignoring the gyrations of the market. So we don't move our terms up and down when the market goes up and down. We don't move our advice up and down. We just say like, here is what we think you should do as a startup, and no matter what everyone else is doing, you just do this. Um, and so we always tell startups that we think it is a huge advantage if you have profitability within Grasp. So that means, it doesn't mean you're profitable right now, but it means if you had to, if the world went crazy, um, you could get to profitability without needing to raise any outside capital. And you have to assume that if the world is going to change like that, you're going to have some decline in customer revenue as well. Uh, so what we tell startups is treat the dollars you've raised as the last you will ever raise, and have a plan C um, about what happens if you can't raise any more capital. It's fine to operate on plan A, but continually think about plan C and whether you have that in grasp if the world goes crazy. And that, I think, uh, is good advice in any market, and it's the advice we always give. You've written uh, on your blog and talked about the, the, the problems unique to the post-YC phase. Yeah. Um, what, are, what are some of the biggest um, pitfalls you see startups fall into? And, and I'd like you to include in that uh, your discussion of fake work. What is it and how can we avoid it? Well, one big problem um, is that there is a lack of focus and intensity after YC for some founders um, that they, they had during YC. Um, this is a really high class problem to have, but YC has become, it's sort of like gotten to the point in the ecosystem or whatever where you can like coast on being a YC founder. Um, and if you want to just like go speak at events and have coffee with sort of important and interesting sounding people and not work on your startup, you can do that. Um, and this, again, high class problem, but still a problem for us. And we, and it's so tempting for founders that sometimes people just have to make the mistake before they learn that actually this will not lead to success and it's fun in the moment and six months later no one cares about you. Um, but we have a lot of founders that go through YC, they focus on growing every week, they ship product, they talk to customers, they do everything right, they, they raise a few million dollars, they come on Bloomberg TV, um, you know, their TechCrunch writes an article about them, they go to Sun Valley, they do whatever, they do whatever, and then uh, they realize or they decide that that is more fun than actually like grinding out a startup. And it feels like real work because, you know, people are talking about you and you're getting some sort of attention and a few customers and, you know, venture capitalists are reaching out to you, whatever. And so uh, founders get tempted down that path, sometimes just a month, just for a month in the good case, but sometimes multiple years and sometimes forever because the company never recovers. And so at our, we have our reunion dinner one month after the end of YC. We're sort of on a fast time frame. At our reunion dinner, the thing we talk about the most is many of you are probably already going down this path and it's not too late. You know, you can still save the company and turn this around, but you've got to do it now. And you have to really commit to doing the things that made you originally successful. 
and not getting distracted and all this other stuff, which will not work. Um, New York as a startup hub, uh, Cornell, obviously a big part of that discussion. I read with interest actually the, the addition of tech jobs in New York over the last seven years has been something like 58% outpacing Silicon Valley, though not San Francisco. What is, um, what do you see in terms of the potential for New York to develop as a, as a tech hub? Regrettably, I have never lived in New York because I always love coming here. Um, so I have to sort of rely on what friends of mine who run companies and do live in New York have told me. Uh, the, there are a lot of things that are great and there are a lot of startups in New York that are doing really well. Um, the, the two problems that I hear about most often from people who I, I trust to get this right, um, one is the short-term focus. So everyone in Silicon Valley, whether or not they will admit it, wants to make a lot of money, but they're willing to wait a long time to do it. You know, if they have to work on something for 10 years, that's okay. Um, and in New York, at least from what I've heard, people have had a harder time finding large groups of people willing to put their heads down and commit for 10 years to something. Um, and the other problem is that New York is still, although less and less every year, dominated by finance. And it is really valuable if you're working in the industry that is you know, dominating the city. So if you're in movies, you definitely want to be in LA. Politics, you definitely want to be in DC. Finance, you definitely want to be in New York. Um, and that is what people talk about you know, out at bars and the restaurants and, and in Silicon Valley. Just people talk about tech and startups. And so there is still a real value, I think, to being the number one industry of a city. Um, but maybe in New York, that's going to flip. And I think if tech becomes the biggest thing in New York and not finance, uh, then like Silicon Valley is, is really in trouble. But I did want to ask about hard science. Your um, willingness uh, as an investor to invest in startups that are focused on hard science, very difficult for a lot of venture capitalists to think about um, because of the long term, uh, their, their, their need to be invested yeah. over the long term. Give us a little bit about why kind of you're thinking around that. Well, first of all, if any of you are working on uh, hard tech startups, um, I am probably the most willing investor to fund crazy stuff in all of Silicon Valley, so I'd love to talk to you. Um, look, I think that really important problems sometimes take a long time. And I think, unfortunately, that many of my colleagues, although not even really colleagues, I don't think of myself as a venture capitalist at all, many venture capitalists are not willing to make long-term bets. They want things that are going to pay off in a few years with IR. They can understand and model and, um, you know, they have LPs that want to talk to them every quarter and sort of yell at them if they do this crazy stuff and just want to talk about like, oh, this startup's in the news. Why didn't you fund that company? Whatever. And, and, and you have to really have courage of your convictions to focus on these things that take years or decades. Um, I'm the chairman of the board of two nuclear companies that will take a decade at least, probably two or three. Um, and that's cool with me because I think it's really important and I think it's going to work um, or it has a good chance of working. But unfortunately, there are not enough investors in Silicon Valley willing to fund those companies at the large levels. Um, part of the reason that we raised this later stage growth fund is that so if one of those companies needs a giant check, um, we can do it because other people aren't. Sam, thanks a lot. Thanks, thanks for, for having joining me. us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure to follow Tech at Bloomberg on Twitter, like Cornell Tech at Bloomberg on Facebook, or email techevents at bloomberg.net to get invited to future events in this series. You can also watch any of our interviews from this series on Inside Bloomberg on YouTube.